Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come to this time when we are attending to your word most clearly, most attentively. Help us to draw near, Lord. Draw near to you. Draw near to each other. Draw near to your purpose. Draw near to your power. And I pray that you would give both to Neil now as he comes to deliver what he has prepared and what you have led him to share with us. May we listen with open ears and open minds and open eyes of the heart that we might be even more your people when we leave this place than we were when we came. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Indulge me in a little bit of uh, an autobiographical review here. I first came to Bethesda in 1980. Uh, I was a young man, and I was in love with a person whom I shall not name, Kate. And uh, I came after a football game, and I sat up in the balcony and... Um, hung out here and I thought well this is a pretty cool place. I was not a Christian at the time and I kind of had an affection for the senior pastor uh, he was a, seemed like a benevolent fellow, a kind fellow and over time he helped me greatly get through some of my doubts about Jesus and I was able to become a Christian uh, up until about 1984 for me church was all good uh, I loved coming here, uh, I was learning about Jesus Uh, I was developing a a church family, and it was really quite a wonderful experience for me. In 1984, we had an associate pastor, uh, and that associate pastor also took a a distinct interest in me. He came to the hospital where I was studying uh, and would visit me over lunch hours, and we would hang out together, and it was just really good. He showed kindness and concern for me, and I thought, man, church is all good. Uh, And then, unfortunately, those two pastors developed a dispute. And I think it was about who should preach and who should not preach and kind of various degrees. And eventually, their dispute, both of them left the church. I came to my first ever church meeting, uh, again, in 1984. I was 24-year-old. I was uh, in my fourth year of medical school. And I saw their church leaders say some intemperate things. 
And it was really kind of bizarre. One of them stormed out of the meeting, and uh, it was unfortunate. This, this fellow had, had been another mentor of mine, and I kind of had these three mentors, and all of them seemed to be imploding. It was really quite bizarre to watch. It was quite challenging. At the time, uh, Kate and I had a somewhat legendary on and off uh, relationship, and we were off what we call one of the off periods. Uh, and I was here at Bethesda, and I thought, wow, like, I don't get it. Um, this is not what I was expecting from the church. I'm feeling very alone. I think I should just leave. Like, what's up with church? It was really quite difficult, and it kind of harkens to this idea of church hurt. Was it supposed to be this way? Was this how the wise spiritual leaders were supposed to act? I don't think it was. Now, that was 1984, and I'm very glad I didn't walk away from from Bethesda, for you have become my family. You have become people I love. If I'm having uh, a bad day, I just think of someone like Rosemarie Tan, uh, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet in the world, and her evil brother, Philip. (laughs) The church has had a very positive effect on my spiritual formation, and I'm grateful to you, Bethesda, for that. But there's no question at that time there was church hurt. So what is the church facing now? What is Bethesda facing now? I'm just going to briefly go through what I hope to be the applications you will see from today's message. Draw near in times of trouble. Hold fast in times of trouble. And encourage one another in times of trouble. Why those three things and why in times of trouble? Well, Jesus himself promises in John 16 that in this world you will have trouble. So what's going on in the culture? What is the culture impacting the church with and and how is the culture influencing us as as we come here to be worshipers of God? Well, I would say that it's probably not very good, the relationship that we have with the culture. A study of 27,000 houses of worship found that 9,000 of those houses of worship, mostly Christian churches, were preparing to close and probably would be closed by 2025. Similar headlines declare that Anglicanism will probably be dead by 2040. In 1986, a full 10% of Canadians identified as Anglican And as of 2019, before the pandemic, that's down to 3%. A major study of de-churching done in the Northeast United States uh, identified that prior to COVID, the the typical uh, attendance at a church was about 137 people. And that as of 2019, it's down to 67. Of these churches, their long-term viability financially is in grave question. Those congregations are shrinking, they're aging, and they're detaching from their neighbors. A number of churches in this district in particular, in the Northeast United States, have closed their doors. They are no longer churches. Their pews are empty. 
But it's not just that churches are closing. Christians themselves are being marginalized and persecuted. Christians are being marginalized, and we see evidence of this kind of all over the world. We can think of a New Jersey teacher who was suspended by giving a student a Bible. A church, a football coach in Washington had a very famous case where he was kind of put on trial for praying after a football game. The chief of the Atlanta Fire Brigade was fired for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teaching. A Marine was court-martialed for having a Christian slogan on her desk. And we can think of examples like this really all over the world. Christians are now considered problematic. On a CBC website, it says that many Canadians now believe that Catholicism, evangelical Christianity, and Islam are more damaging to, to society than beneficial. This was found to be the majority opinion of Canadians So it would appear that the view of Christians is certainly less than positive. It's also important for us to realize, especially as we consider the context today that Mark prayed for of the difficulties in the Middle East, globally, Christians are the most persecuted group in the world. The group Open Doors USA figures that 360 million Christians live in areas where there is significant risk of persecution to them. Roughly 5,600 Christians were murdered and more than 6,000 were imprisoned, with an additional 4,000 being kidnapped in just the last two years. More than 5,000 churches and religious facilities named in the name of Christ were destroyed. And I think there was at least 60 in Canada that were destroyed in the past two years. Most of them burned. So the culture sounds pretty hard on the Christian world. And then into that comes COVID. So COVID accelerated these changes that were taking place in the culture. Obviously, we were not really permitted to have any in-person ministries on and off for about two years. We had to stop English classes, something that's very important to me. Prayer meetings, Bible studies were Zoom-based. No face-to-face contact, no ability to encourage each other. We had multiple services in the church where only 10 people were allowed to attend. Now, I remember some of those services. I was permitted to come because Kate was singing and I was able to drive her here. But they, they were powerful services to be at but clearly bizarre and difficult for the church. A full five out of 20 churches after COVID have, cha- have closed their doors. During that time, we could have no long-term planning. We didn't know what we we're gonna be allowed to do the next day in terms of having people come to church. The Bible warns us about planning for the long-term for fear that our hubris will come into account, and then we will puff ourselves up with our plans for the future. But nonetheless, we have to plan for the future as good stewards of Christ's work here. Week-to-week government, kind of government mandates changed. A Christian blogger observed that, and I quote, two years into a global pandemic, having lived through a season of tremendous disruption and uncertainty and loss, and facing the urgent crises of our world, many congregations are feeling a collective sense of weariness and disorientation. 
At nearly every level of society, change is stirring. Accelerating change, traumatic change, complex change that requires transformative leadership. And faith communities are trying their best to find their bearings. I have a confession for you. I must admit that I have not been providing transformative leadership during this time. It seems to me I've read just about every book on how to help your church succeed at a crisis, not the COVID crisis, but all the other crises. Three easy steps to a healthy church, and most of those books don't seem to have worked. Most of those books, and many of them now, are repudiated. The seeker mentality uh, popularized by churches out of Chicago. These are difficult, difficult times for the church. I myself had a very hard time seeing the way forward. They talk about transformations in leadership where people go from being risk takers to caretakers and then eventually to undertakers. And I must admit that myself, I was probably on that caretaker turning to undertaker mentality. And I want to confess that and ask for your forgiveness. The good news is that in the kind of the transliteration of scripture called the message, uh, popularized by Eugene Peterson, they have this from the Sermon on the Mount. And it says, you are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. And I think the less of me is an important idea. So, wow, into this cultural stew of decline, de-churching, marginalization, persecution, come some of our own issues here at Bethesda. And the first I'll talk about is disease. The most notable disease we're facing here is our beloved Pastor Mark, who has Parkinson's disease. And I can tell you that I thought Mark had Parkinson's before anybody else thought he had Parkinson's, just watching him move. It seems to me Parkinson's is increasing in prevalence in our community, and I, as a sports medicine doctor, used to see none of it. And now I'll see one or two cases a week, kind of being misdiagnosed and coming into my practice with Parkinson's. So that disease is changing Mark's capacity, and that's been sad to watch. But more than this disease, I think of saints we have lost. Uh, I hope some of you have had the, the chance to meet a man by the name of Hank Finlayson, who was probably the nicest man I ever met. Um, a great, great Christian man who uh, was kind and gentle and smart and funny. I think of losing men like Hank Finlayson uh, to disease. I think of Betty Ehlers, another beautiful saint who many of you would know who passed away just last year. And then old names that some of the old timers will remember. Andrew Karsgaard, uh, Connie and Bill Rennie, uh, Bert and Claude Trites, uh, Bert and Dorothy Moore. Wonderful saints that served and loved the church. They're all dead. It makes us realize that people are important. People are important. But if you're in relationships, you also know that relationships with people can be difficult. We were made aware as leadership of a a marital relationship that was in very much trouble this year. Significant, significant problems. This couple was not a member of the church and they were not really attending the church. 
but they had significant and previous long-standing ties to Bethesda. Emotions ran high around this issue, and it caused significant difficulty amongst the leadership. I can honestly say that I'm very proud of how hard the leadership has worked to maintain relational integrity despite this type of difficulty. That thing's not over, but we're praying for both of the sides in that relationship for health and healing and help. At the same time as we were dealing with relational issues, we began to notice that our finances here at Bethesda were slipping a little. We had done a wonderful job raising money, $100,000 for the Afghan refugees. And many of you have had a chance to meet Kadir and his wife, uh, and they're, they're beautiful boys, and we are so thankful that they're here in Winnipeg and really doing well, loving their apartment, kids in school, uh, having uh, good relationships with, with many of you. But at the same time that that fund had grown, we developed an almost paralleled reduction in our general fund. And we have to look at significant issues there that we may have to change here at Bethesda in order to help our expense line. We are an independent, non-denominational church. We have no help aside from the help in the room and obviously the help that flows from God himself. And so in the midst of these difficulties, we just had the regular hard work of ministry. Again, the Afghan ministry is a good example of that. People scurrying around all the time, uh, getting beds and couches and furnitures and lamps and bank accounts and Manitoba health cards and driving people to appointments and good on you, Bethesda. That is God's work for these people, helping people who are in difficulty. But many people worked really, really hard. So I ask you the question, Gracious, Neil, like, am I supposed to leave here and just, what, uh, be forlorn? This kind of sounds, in some ways, hopeless, all of these challenges that we're facing. When I feel this type of feeling, and I have felt hopeless at times over this past summer, I reflect on the words of the faith. I reflect on the words of the faith. And hope is one of the most beautiful words in the faith. Forgiveness, another beautiful word of the faith. Reconciliation, that's what it's all about. Reconciling those broken people back to God. What a beautiful idea. Mercy, again from the message translation, mercy beats judgment when? Every time. Every time. Grace, perhaps the most beautiful word of all. Uh, God's riches at Christ's expense, an acronym uh, if you're looking for one for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. When you get something you don't deserve. Justice, you get what you deserve. Mercy, you don't get what you deserve. And grace, you get something you don't deserve. Let's come back to hope. Romans 5 gives us a beautiful picture of hope. And uh, as a doctor, we work in suffering. Every patient I see is suffering. And you have to make sense of it. You have to make sense of suffering. How on earth does all this suffering happen? 
uh, and it's, it, it really is overwhelming. Every patient, every day, suffering. And I find this passage from Romans gives me as a doctor and as a person and as a congregant and as a church leader hope because it links suffering to hope, love, perseverance, character, maturity. You could always put a a feather in your Bible at Romans 5. We also glory in our sufferings from verse 3 because we know that suffering produces perseverance Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This beautiful linkage between suffering, hope, and love. Bethesda, I know you're suffering whether it's on the inside, whether it's on the outside, whether it's in your family. We are there. But I hope in your suffering you will hear that love and you will understand that you can have hope. One of my favorite stories in the entire Bible also links suffering, hope, and love. And it is that story of the thief on the cross. This thief on the cross, while on the cross, mocked Jesus. He mocked Jesus when suffering beside him. And he saw how Jesus reacted to those around them. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was when he said, you know, Father, give these people a break. They don't know what they're doing. But as he was dying beside Jesus, he changed his mind and realized that Jesus was the king. This reminds us that salvation is a gift from God. And it has nothing to do with your works. That thief couldn't go and right any of the wrongs. He had been found guilty. He was considered a thief. He was considered a criminal. His offenses had been considered meritorious of death, the death of crucifixion. He would not have passed a Bible study quiz very well. He couldn't be baptized. He couldn't go to catechism or confirmation. Yet Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Confirming for us that it's Jesus plus nothing. It's just Jesus. Acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior. He shows us, the thief on the cross shows us that it's God's grace, the unmerited favor that he gives us. It also shows us that really no sin is too bad to be forgiven. If you think you can't be forgiven, well, you can. That one unforgivable sin, I'm not sure I understand what that is, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But this idea that everything else under what we see in our world, is a forgivable. Ultimately, this story means that there's hope for all of us. There is hope for all of us. So we're going to come back to our main scripture for our talk today from the book of Hebrews. We come back to this passage aware that the culture is against us. 
We come back to this passage realizing that the global pandemic has been very hard on the church and on people in general. We come with confessions that your leadership has been inadequate. We come acknowledging that since the fall, all of us are vulnerable to disease, disordered relationships, and death. So what shall we do? What shall we do? So our three exhortations from our scripture today, when in trouble, draw near. When in trouble, hold fast. And when in trouble, encourage one another. So from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, verse 19 to 22, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near. This ability to draw near is really cool. This idea of the curtain. If you're not familiar with this story, the curtain in the tabernacle separating the Holy of Holies from the priest As Jesus died on the cross, this was torn from the top down, providing this access. You no longer needed a priest. You yourself, on your knees at home, in your trouble, could go right to God. Right to God. You could draw near. An incredible linkage between the Old Testament covenant and the new covenant in Jesus This imagery that you and I, humble little people, had direct access to the creator of the universe now, you can draw near. If you are troubled, draw near. The way is now clear. If you are troubled, draw near to God. We are also invited to hold fast. I just want you to drink this picture in. I want you to drink this picture in. I can think of really nothing more beautiful than this picture. The embrace of Jesus with his hands scarred around you, around me. Not only is the way clear, but we're invited to hold fast to our master. As Mark joked about this week, you don't have many songs called Hold Unswervingly, uh, but it comes from verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly, let us hold fast to the hope we we profess. Why? For he who promised is faithful. This is a deep, emotional, meaningful embrace. I hope that you have felt it.
It is there. The offer is there for each of you. When? When you're in trouble. Draw near and hold fast and don't let go. If you're a parent, you know that when your child is hurting and they come to you and they hold you, Dad, Mom, I'm hurting. Part of your heart thinks, I know you're hurting, but it is so good to embrace you. It is so good to embrace you. I want to help you. This picture of Jesus the Son, who is Jesus the Father, who is Jesus the Holy Spirit, this is there in these troubled waters. The embrace is there for you. Open your arms. Open your arms. Take the embrace. Draw near, hold fast, and encourage each other. Encourage each other. From verse 24 in our passage. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. That passage is entitled, Let Us Consider. Let us consider is a beautiful phrase. And I would strongly endorse your perusal of the documents that Mark referred to, uh, the white pieces of paper, especially the one entitled Committed to Glory, A Vision for Hope and a Future at Bethesda Church, written by Yuri and endorsed by the council. I found this so, so optimistic as I read it this week. For three years since COVID, can't do any planning, not thinking about the future, just dealing with trouble, just dealing with finances, just dealing... Oh no, let's think about the future together, Bethesda. Let's think about the future together. And as part of that document, in its sister document, this paper on the transition of leadership from Mark to Yuri, again, this is a plan that's been unanimously endorsed by council and deals with some of the sad realities about disease that we talked about and capacity and some of the stressors we've been dealing with together today. But it also really seems to show what Bethesda has been doing here from what I can see for about the past 15 years that we seem to get the person for the job before we know we need a person for the job. It started with a woman by the name of Lexi Grambart, who was a delightful person uh, who was from a cadre of students who were, who were working at uh, the, the Mennonite University, CMU. And we had maybe seven or eight of them. They were all delightful, young, energetic folks. And we still have contact with many of them. And we were in want of a youth pastor. And several of us kind of almost at the exact same time said, what do you think about Lexi? She seems to have lots of gifts. And Lexi became our youth pastor. And it just kept happening, different person after different person for jobs. From pastoral roles, Chris, Chris Wettstein as an associate pastor, Yuri as an associate pastor, previous people who've worked in administrative coordinator roles, Naveen in the administrative coordinator role, people who are here, we didn't even know we needed them. We'll have more a chance to talk about this uh, at our annual meeting, and I look forward to seeing you there in about 10 days' time. 
the consideration here in Scripture isn't just about your church transition. Let us consider what? How we can encourage one another, spur each other on to good deeds. This is actually something that's biological. I'm reading a book on the emotions in the brain. And things like encouragement have biological effects in your brain. When you hear them, they make certain areas of your brain light up in pleasure. It's good to be encouraged by other people. Let us encourage one another so we can spur each other on to good deeds. Ephesians 4 has something to say about this, this idea of being together. Ephesians 4 deals with this type of hopeful future consideration. It says from a 4 verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the love of the Son of God. And then down in verse 15, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The joining of the body together, one body in unity, built up in love, This is the way the church should be. My son is currently a medical resident, and he's working on the amputation ward at the Health Sciences Center. And he would have many patients like this. This woman has an amputation. The amputation, by definition, leads to an impairment of function. Now, you can still have dramatic function. We see people with both legs amputated running marathons. Yet it's an impairment of function. I want us to reflect on this idea of the body with an impairment. If you and I do not do our part, the body operates like it has an amputation. And this will manifest itself as an impairment of function. I just want you to simply consider what is your role in the body? You have a role. What is your role? And do you think you're doing it? And this would be a great thing to speak with Pastor Yuri about, Pastor, or Pastor Mark about. Hey, what do you think my role is in the body? You have a role. Let's close with the ultimate goal of a church. Many of us love the love chapter uh, from 1 Corinthians 13. But the love chapter is not about romance. It's not about marriage, even though many of us had it read at our weddings. It's about the workings of the church. 1 Corinthians 13 is about the workings of the church. From 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 24, we read, But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Each one of us is a part of the body of Christ.
First Corinthians 12 then goes on to reflect on the many stations we talked about previously, you know, apostles and teachers and evangelists. And then it has this beautiful, beautiful phrase. And now, church, let me show you the most excellent way. Let me show you the most excellent way. What's the most excellent way? It's love. So these familiar words, the most excellent way, church, not husband and wife, although it is for husband and wife, for you, church, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, a very spiritual person, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all ministries and all knowledge, uh, intellect, wow, we're gifted to have that person. And if I have faith, again, a bedrock person that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, the person of great charity, and give over my body to hardship, one who denies themselves, so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it gives no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I don't know about you, but that's a tough, tough bar. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes. So Bethesda, you could say to me, Neil, you have not loved us. Because I have not always protected you. I have not always trusted you. I have not always been hopeful. But I guess I'm trying to persevere, as I know many, many of you are. Back to that study of de-churching we talked about. Uh, the authors of the study were Davis and Graham. Uh, again, out of the northeastern United States, and they said despite the sobering statistics identified in their book, they were still optimistic about the future of the church. Part of their advice, be patient. The great de-churching has not happened overnight and will not be reversed quickly. Congregations will need what the authors call relationship wisdom and a quiet, calm, and curious demeanor, where leaders are quick to listen and slow to speak. The path forward, they write, is not easy, but it is simple. I am hopeful that we can be on this path together, this difficult path that might be simple, a, a, a trail blazed by hope, unity, and love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for 
showing us the way, I guess more accurately, being the way. Thank you for preparing us that in this world we have trouble, but the amazing part of that verse, take heart, we can take heart, for you have overcome the world. Help us in this journey, Lord, this path, as we want to speak into our culture and not be negatively affected by it. We want to confess our inadequacies as leaders, and we want to continue to be your people, with each one of us doing our part, linked together as if by holy ligaments. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.